The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC is available online at www.overlandpark.cc. If you have your your Bibles, we're going to jump into Acts chapter 24 today. Acts chapter 24. We're kind of moving through the last few chapters. We've been in this for quite some time, and the Lord has taken us on an incredible journey. And and so we'll we'll jump right back in today. and just talk a little bit about indifference. So, you know, when we think in, I mean, in, terms of in, in terms of indifference, like somebody, you know, Abby might say, hey, you want to go for Chinese food or, or Mexican food? And I'm like, I don't care. You know, whatever. Um, somebody might ask you if you want to go for a walk or watch a movie. You're like, nah. Either one's fine. So it's funny. Why are we that way? Why, why this uh, indifference? I, I, I started to think about it a little bit, and I, I believe it is because when, when there's no decision made, when we, are, when we are decision neutral, we think if we remain neutral, we won't be held accountable. So if we go and we pick one or the other and you don't like it, I think it puts you, if you say you don't care and she chooses Mexican food, you can kind of be like, I knew we should have went to go get Chinese. <laughs> you know, it kind of puts you in a, in a place where you don't have to be held accountable about the decision. So when it comes to the gospel, indifference does not excuse. And I think there are a lot of people who are approaching the gospel and what it means to like, what do we do with Jesus with a tremendous amount of indifference and urgency is what the gospel is always demanding. It's always demanding a response of, of, of urgency that we approach it that way. And so we look at this Acts chapter 24, we come to this place uh, where Paul, we've been really kind of just unpacking how things start spiraling out of control for him. Um, he's on his way to Rome, or not to Rome, he's on his way to uh, uh, to Jerusalem to take a gift that he's collected amongst all these Gentile churches that he started uh, during this missionary journey over several years. He's, col- he's had them take up a collection, and he's taking it back to the original home church, the Jerusalem church, where the church started on the day of Pentecost, and, and the Holy Spirit showed up, and, and believers just came to be, and there was a church. They're struggling there because of the persecution they have been, been experiencing. And so he's taking a gift back there, and as he takes a gift, we've learned the last few weeks, man, he's falsely accused. Um, he's beaten. He's held captive by the Sanhedrin. Then he's rescued by this uh, commander. I think his name is Lysias. He comes and rescues him. They're about to beat him to death, and he has a little bit of an experience before um, the Sanhedrin, and they want to do away with him, and, and they make a plot to kill him, and so Lysias has to get him out in the middle of the night and take him to Caesarea, and so that's where he's at, and uh, he's come before this governor named Felix, and Felix is going to hear his case, and so when we, when we look at that, I think this is important for us to, to understand, is a lot of times when we th- are thinking about our faith and thinking about what does it mean to be a Christian, Sometimes people will say things, well, like, man, you know, other people believe in these types of gods, and well before Christianity, there were um, these pagan gods, people believed in this, and, and they wanted to go that way, and so how can you kind of come to this place where you look at Christianity, what's the difference in all of it? Here, here's the difference. It's, it's rooted in an historical account of real events. It's not something that a man has, like, 
just imagined in his mind. We're, like the Bible is not a historical document. It is a document about the theology, the story of God and man. But it contains an incredible amount of history. And so when we're reading about it, we're not just reading about things uh, that describe some God out there that is uh, somebody made up. We're reading about things that really happened. So when we read about Paul, we're reading about a guy that um, lived. He was alive. He was walking. He was bre- he's a brother of ours. Um, we are, are related to him through the family of God. That when we come to know Christ and we're spiritually born, as Jesus talked about, Paul was spiritually born. He was not alive spiritually, and he came to be spiritually. He was... Um, brought new life, and and Jesus uh, personally visited him and called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And so we think back, man, we're looking at his trial. We're looking at a a real individual that is standing before people, and he's being accused. And, And I think it's important for us to know that, man, we don't just believe something that somebody made up. Like, there, is there a faith element to it where we must come to a place where we um, trust in faith and that Christ is who he says he is? Yes, there's some faith to it, but it's not blind faith. It's rooted in actual events that happened um, back in time that we can uh, understand and know and learn about. And so when we read this, that's kind of what we're doing is I'm trying to do uh, all that I can, my due diligence to equip you and teach you so that you are not spiritually ignorant. Okay, one of the things like one of the things that's wrong um, with the culture today is that we have too many religious people that are just spiritually ignorant. They they don't know the things of the word, and so I don't want to be a part of a church that I'm responsible for leading, where you, you you don't have any ability to think about the things of the Lord, and you just rely on me to nurse you from week to week as infants. That's not the way this thing works, man. We're supposed to be people who are feasting on the meat of spiritual things, and we're gaining spiritual nutrition and becoming strong so that we understand the things of the Lord. So as we read this, it's important for us to know, man, we're reading about something that really happened, but we're reading some things that will will come to life for us and they will make application to help us to know how do we um, ensure that we're not people who are indifferent because we certainly see some indifference that takes place. And so it looks like what's going to happen here is Paul is, he's been before the Sanhedrin and, and Lysias was trying to figure out what was going on. He sends him to Caesarea and, and he's going to go before this guy by the name of Felix. And then he's going to go before a guy by the name of Festus. And then he's going to go before King Agrippa. And, and, and so we just see over and over and over a repeated pattern where Paul is put on trial before other people. And so we, we wonder why in the world is the scripture, uh, why is Luke teaching, taking such pains to, to, to describe um, these trials that Paul went under or, or, or experienced over and over? Isn't one of them enough or couldn't we just do the last one? I think the reason is, is because Paul's not really the one on trial. It's everyone else. And so we're going to see that as we unpack this. But, but I want you to notice as we look at our brother, notice um, how calm. <laughs> like here's a guy who has been arrested, 
falsely accused. He's been beaten by people. They were, they were literally going to kill him out in the street if he hadn't been rescued by the Roman. And, and so now he's standing on trial. And I'm, I'm like, when you read, you could see, men the, the fruit of the Spirit is just all over him. Like he is just walking in the power of the Spirit at this moment as he deals with these accusers. And so it says that five days later, this is in verse 1 of chapter 24, five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. And when Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. Who is this Tertullus guy? Well, he was a lawyer that was secured by the Jewish Sanhedrin. Um, These guys who were bringing the accusations against Paul got a guy who was really good, probably connected. They lawyered up, okay? They were going to do everything they could, and they knew that this guy knew how to speak to this, um, this leader and that they could try to sway and influence him. They're trying to do everything they can to do away with Paul. So they hire this guy, and what does this guy do? He, he comes in and he blows smoke. That's all he's doing. He's, he's bragging. He said, man, Felix, you are amazing. Uh, the Jews are so thankful for our, uh, the leadership. He was terrible for them. Like there was nothing good about his leadership whatsoever. They did not endure a time of peace whatsoever. And so they're, they're just trying to work this guy's ego, okay? And so um, he said, so they, as they get him set up and they get him ready, he says, we, here, here's their case. We have found this man to be a troublemaker stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. So all these witnesses that they brought, they're kind of like, here, here, exactly, that's exactly what this guy did. Now what's fascinating is if we know the story that we've learned about, and you do know it if you've been here, Paul didn't start the riot, they did. Like Paul was just on his way to the temple, he wasn't doing anything. And so he's about to, and, and, and I think this is really important for us on, on a number of, of levels, is that when we get in these situations where we feel like we're getting out of control, like our, our, our neck is starting to turn red and we're, our blood pressure is being raised, you ought to be able to take a, a cue from the Apostle Paul, just take a breath in that moment. These guys said things that should have upset him and infuriated him, but never is he led by emotion. He takes a breath, he breathes, and he he clearly presents his case. He doesn't get rattled by them. And I think that's one of the things that the the fruit of the Spirit helps us to have self-control in these moments to where we, um, uh, if we're not careful and we're led by the flesh, we will just lash out an emotion and we will do more harm than good. He takes a step back, he breathes, and as they make these false accusations against them, um, this is what he says. The governor motioned to him to speak, and Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. 
Now, what's Paul saying in that moment? Well, he's not like building him up and trying to stroke his ego. All he's saying is, I know you've been a judge for a while, and you're not stupid, bro, and I'm about to lay out a case for you. That's all he's doing. And listen to what he says. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd to, uh, in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit, I worship the God of our followers, of our fathers as a follower of the way which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is what is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in my, any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you um, and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they have found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it is for one thing that I shouted um, as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, this is very important, who was well acquainted with the way. What does that mean? It means he knew a lot of people who were Christians. He had encountered them. He adjourned the proceedings. And when Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. And he ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. And several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. And he sent for Paul, and he listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. And he said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. For two years, this guy had Paul, and he should have been released. He should, under Roman rule, he should not have been in prison. But he kept him because he was trying to pacify the Jews. He didn't know what to do with Paul. He liked to listen to him. And so he is going back and forth. And so as we look at this and we're looking at Paul's trial, the reality of the matter is, is that the Lord is using Paul to put Felix and Drusilla and, and Ananias and, and, and Tertullus and all of the rest of the Jews on trial. He's using the testimony of one man to put everyone else on trial. And I think that's important for us to realize is that that's what the Lord does with people of the way, is that he uses us to put others on trial. And, and so as I, as I look at these passages of Scripture, I'm reminded of a few things that I want us to just kind of take away and, and, and be encouraged by and to think about. And the first one is this, is that everyone is resurrected. Okay? So what? Okay. We don't think that way. 
What we think about in, in American culture, okay? I'm not talking about as, as, as what is a biblical worldview. I'm talking about what basically everybody says. Is that we just think in terms of when we go through loss, like if somebody dies, we immediately say things like, um, you, you'll hear, hear the culture say, well, they became an angel. They have gone to heaven. Well, I know they're up there doing these things. And so when we think in terms of the afterlife, we just think everyone's going there except people we don't like. Right? Everybody's going there. Well, that's not a good biblical um, worldview. That is not good biblical doctrine. So when we look at the scripture very clearly at what is happening here, as Paul is being used to make a case that everyone is resurrected. Now, in verse 15, it says very clearly, there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Now, what in the world is a resurrection? Resurrection is when something dead is, that comes to life. It, 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 it's dead and it comes back alive. And so when we think in terms of resurrection, we, there are so many different things that we have um, to symbolize it. We baptize people. We have a baptism coming up in a couple of weeks. If you've never been baptized and you're a candidate for baptism, you've experienced conversion, you've come to know Jesus, you've been born again, then we baptize and we immerse people. Now, why do we immerse people? Because it is the best picture of what is happening. I'm dying, as the scripture teaches, so I am buried with Christ and I'm raised up in spiritual life. And so I go down and I come up. Now, is anything happening in that moment? A testimony is happening. What, like, it, 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 the testimony cannot mean anything unless a person has come to a saving knowledge of Christ. They've been born again. They, they have repented of their sins and they realize who Jesus is. They confess him as Lord. They receive him as Savior. Then we follow in obedience and we are baptized to make confession to those around us. That's what was going on in, in the early churches. Because when they, wherever these people would do this, they would be saved and immediately they'd get baptized. They would go down to the river. And everybody would see them get baptized. And it is in that moment that the news would spread as they were making a public confession that these people have become part of the way of Christ. And they would be excommunicated from their Jewish families. That's where the way it started in Jerusalem. Well, then out beyond Jerusalem, for the Gentiles, it started beyond. Like Rome required you uh, to um, observe the Pax Romana, where you would burn a pinch of incense and you would confess that Caesar is Lord once a year. Every other day of the year, you could practice whatever you wanted. But this one day of the year, you had to do this. The Christians wouldn't do it. And that's why they end up being burned at the stake. That's why they were uh, tortured. It's because they would not... Um, one day a year, confess that Caesar is Lord. And so they, they, they too would be baptized and they would come in to uh, be people of the way. And so there was a time under Nero's rule, which is a little later than what we're reading about right now, he was extremely cruel to Christians. And so Christians had to, that's why the whole ichthus thing came into being, where they do, used the fish. It was a symbol that they would meet here, and they had to sort of be a little bit secretive, or they would be killed for what they believed, but yet they would be baptized in public to profess their faith in Christ. And so it symbolizes that I'm dying, and I'm being risen again in Christ. 
And so I have experienced the resurrection in my life. I was dead spiritually. Like the Bible says that every man is dead in his sins and transgressions. So what does it mean to be dead? It means I'm incapable of doing anything, and the Lord draws me. Jesus said nobody can come to the Father unless the Father draws him unto himself. So the Lord draws me through the power of the Holy Spirit to himself. And as I respond to that invitation and I begin to understand and comprehend God's grace and all its truth and I receive it, I say yes to Jesus, then that is what we mean by being born again. And so my my soul or my spirit, if you will, that is dead because of sin comes to life, and it is the life of Christ. So I experience a resurrection, all right? That is, that's what happens for the believer. That's not what's being described here. There will be a resurrection of the righteous and the dead. Now I have been, I have undergone my first resurrection. I look forward to my second resurrection. What is the second resurrection? Well, we need to look no further um, than the the cross of Calvary. We, We have to look no further than Golgotha itself where Jesus was crucified. You see, all are being raised in the future, but not all are going to glory. So we look and we go, okay, we got three people at the time of the, uh, of the crucifixion. We got a, a thief on one side of, of either side of Jesus, and we have Jesus in the middle. And so the one thief, we know the story of the, the thieves. One of them is calling down curses. Actually, both of them are. They're mocking Jesus. But as one of them continues to observe how Jesus is dying, he understands he's in the presence of no mere human, normal human being. And he comes to know the Lord. And so he says to Jesus, as the one is cursing him, he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responds to him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. And not soon after that, not long after that, I should say, they all die. Okay? All three of them die. The two thieves... One of them experienced a spiritual resurrection. The other one did not. Jesus, we know, was God in the flesh and didn't need a spiritual resurrection because he was the resurrection. He said of that to Mary when she asked him about Lazarus who had died. He said, I am the resurrection. So he did not need a spiritual resurrection. The thief was told by Jesus that today you will be with me in paradise. When he died... That thief was with Jesus in paradise immediately. Is that what we mean when we talk about resurrection? It is not. It is a spiritual state that we are in with Christ after death. Three days after they were placed in the ground, all of them were placed in the ground, all of them died, one of them came back. Jesus was resurrected. His body physically was resurrected. His spirit that he told, today you will be with me in paradise, returned to his body. 
his body walked around and interacted with people. Over the next 40 days, Jesus would appear multiple times to the disciples, turning the world upside down. Men who were terrified in fear, he interacted with them and told them to wait because on a certain day that he would send the Holy Spirit, as he told them before the crucifixion, he is reinforcing after the crucifixion. They are seeing him miraculously as they saw him go down in defeat, beat miserably, crucified on the cross of Calvary. They are now entering interacting with the glorified, resurrected Jesus Christ. Paul describes him as the first fruits of the resurrection. Have there been second fruits of the resurrection? No. No one but Jesus has ever been resurrected. Now, we think in terms of Jesus spiritually being in heaven, okay? Jesus is the, is the second person of the Trinity, the physical Jesus that walked the planet is physically still in ex his existence with the Father. There is a real Jesus somewhere that exists in a real resurrected first fruits physical body that is made to last forever and ever and ever, right? That Jesus has said that he will return to the planet. There's prophecies about it, both old and new. Jesus continually talked about it. And we know that Christ is coming back. When Christ comes back and the great white throne judgment takes place, and there are different ways that you can view this, um, different kind of different schools of eschatology that are all um, that are all fall within the pale of orthodoxy when it comes to to Christianity. You can believe different ways about the return of Christ, but all believe He's returning. And when He returns, when when all of time is no more, there will be the resurrection of the dead. That means every person of all time, of all, every period, whether righteous or wicked their bodies will be resurrected. That is what the resurrection is talking about right here. There will be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. So we don't just believe that when we die, we go to heaven and we just exist forever and ever. No, there's something, there, there's a story that the Lord has written in the word. This is what Christianity and, and being a Christian is all about as we are looking forward to the kingdom of Christ when he will reign as king. Right now he reigns as his kingdom in a spiritual realm. He will eventually reign in a physical realm. He is the King of kings, he is the Lord of lords, and he will return. And so what, why is this important? It's because it is important for us to have a biblical understanding, a good, um, solid Christian worldview of the resurrection. Like, like uh, do we don't have to fear death because we know that if we die today, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But it doesn't stop there. The, the Lord somehow miraculously is going to restore for every believer will receive a, an imperishable resurrected body like Jesus's to go on to, to, to live with him forever, ever, ever, and ever. The wicked do not quit existing, okay? So, so a person 
um, that we look at them and we go, they do not know the Lord. And so when we say wicked, we don't necessarily mean that they have to do these evil things. Because what is evil? Evil is just rebelling against what God has called us to do. And so the Lord, he's laying out what he uh, desires for us, what he expects for us in obedience. And so anytime we rebel against that, we're doing sinful things. The righteous are righteous because they have the righteousness of Christ. And the wicked are wicked because they do not have the righteousness of Christ. So there's, there's, there's no sacrifice that remains for them. And so those, all, all people of all times, everywhere, in the future, someday, the scripture clearly teaches there will be a resurrection of the dead. And the souls of, of man, men and women, boys and girls, will be reunited with their bodies. And there will be a judgment that the Lord will set out. That's the first thing I take away. And I thought this was going to be a short sermon, and that sure took a long time, amen? That's hard stuff, though, man. I'm like, golly, what am I doing right now? Well, I'm teaching you what the Lord has called me to teach you. This is important. Everyone is resurrected. Here's the second thing. Everyone decides what to do with, oh, no, no, no. Everyone is on trial concerning the resurrection. Paul said that he was on trial, but the reality is Ananias, as I said, Tertullus, the Jews, Drusilla, and Felix were on trial. Paul was not guilty. Why was he not guilty? Because he knew he had received Christ. Whether you like it or not, okay, whether you like it or not, you are on trial when it comes to the resurrection. Everybody is. Look at what he says. He says, um, unless it is for this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Everyone has to go on that trial. Everyone has to be on, like your life will be laid against the resurrection of Christ. That's all, every human being of all time. It will be laid against the resurrection of Christ. And so it's important for us to go, man, sometimes why do I go to church and I walk away and, and I, I feel a little bit guilty? It is because you are on trial for the resurrection and you are not comprehending that if, if you know Christ, you have been forgiven and you shouldn't walk away guilty because the, the truth of the matter is, is when we take on the righteousness of Christ, Christ Jesus looks at us, and, and, and as God the Father would look at us in judgment and say, uh, why should I uh, uh, allow this person to be in my presence? God the Son, Jesus, steps in our stead, and we receive the righteousness of Christ, and we are not guilty. And so we go through life, and we do not have to deal with the shame that we talked about um, last week. It's because we have received forgiveness of Christ, and our sins have been uh, uh, covered by the blood of Christ. And we, we, like, we receive this joy unspeakable and full of glory, and we're able to walk and follow hard after Jesus. However, if we don't comprehend that, and we, don't, uh, we have not experienced the forgiveness of Christ, then when we get around some of this stuff, we go on trial. And as I shared last week, it is an indictment against us. And so as we face that trial, we're indicted in that moment and we feel that oppression and that guilt and that shame. Why? Because we're guilty. We're wicked. You see, you thought wicked was a term that is only reserved for Hitler. And it is a term that is used to describe people like Hitler. 
But it is also a term in the Bible that is used to describe anybody who doesn't know Jesus. Wicked. There's only the righteous and the wicked. And the only thing we can do to become right with the Lord is to receive Jesus. And we become righteous. That's the only way. You see, God made a way for us. It's so that everyone is resurrected, everyone is on trial concerning the resurrection, and everyone decides to do what to do with the resurrection. Now, here's, here's where I, I think this is really key that we focus in on why Paul is sharing this story, is it's about Felix and Drusilla. Felix and Drusilla liked to hear Paul talk about the kingdom. Like, they loved it. They would brought, call for him frequently, bring Paul in. What are we going to do? Let's get Paul out. You know, like after dinner, why don't we go down and listen to Paul speak a little while about the kingdom? And this is what they would do. Okay, so they would bring him out, and, they, and it says they were acquainted with the way. They were acquainted with it. They knew of it. They knew things about it. I think this is a great picture of what can happen in the churches. There are many people who are acquainted of the way but are not really part of the way. They were very acquainted with it. So as he would begin to um, speak to them about the things of the kingdom, and he would talk about righteousness like I just did, and he would talk about self-control as I just did, and he would talk about the judgment as I just did, it would terrify Felix. And so he would say, enough, I'll call for you again when it is convenient. See, right now, if the Lord is after somebody in this room, right now as you just are like, geez, it's 11.02, enough. Like, I'll deal with this when it's a more convenient time. Will you? Will you? See, that is indifference. Indifference is when we come and the spirit of the living God who has already done everything that he possibly could do to make a way to save humanity is striving with us. And he's just beating on our heart's door. And we're saying, it is enough. I'll deal with this when it's convenient. That is indifference. And it is no excuse when you stand before the God of the universe, when Jesus does return in all of his glory, he does not come as the suffering servant riding on the donkey. He comes as the conquering king riding on a white horse. And we give an account for what? What we did with our decision about the resurrection. What we did with uh, whether or not we would be urgent about who Jesus was or whether we were indifferent. And so time is of the essence of it for us. And as we look here, what is going on is that Felix got afraid and he, he wanted to remain indifferent. So he sent Paul away thinking that he could call for him at any moment. Paul led Felix right up to a moment, what we would call a Kairos moment, where the kingdom is trying to come out of him. He brings him right up to it. And what Felix does is he lets the moment pass by. His indifference led to his, his decision. Now, here's the big idea. Indifference doesn't excuse, therefore, be urgent. Always be urgent with the gospel. Always be urgent to share the gospel. Always be urgent if you are in this place of receiving the gospel. Like today, the message may be specifically tailored for you. And it may call for urgency from you. It may call for everything else in your life to stop and freeze in this moment and go, is the Lord trying to save me right now? 
The last we hear of Felix is that he is replaced by Festus. In other words, he does such a poor job of leading this area that he was responsible for that he eventually gets tossed out and it doesn't end well for him, but we don't know what happens of him. I'm pretty confident that he never does come to know the Lord because if someone of that significance had have come to know the Lord, I believe Luke would have shared it with us. Somebody would have shared that this person came to know the Lord. And so we see again that time is of the essence. When it comes to a Kairos moment happening in your life, don't be indifferent as if there is more time. You have to seize it as if it is the only opportunity. That's when the kingdom starts to roll in your life. When you realize, man, I, like right now, instead of saying it is enough, you realize this is a pivotal moment in your life. And you, got, you go, I want more of him. It is not enough. I want more of the Lord. I want to be righteous. I want to be in a right standing with him. Now, I want, to, I want us to land on two very important, powerful passages of Scripture written by the Apostle Paul. <laughs> uh, one for sure, two, the second one possibly, um, who's just in, like, been a part of all this. This is what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Why don't you go ahead and start playing, bro? Now, now is the time. The words here, um, the, the, the word here for time is like, it is that kairos. Now, now is the time. Now is the kairos for the Lord's favor, his salvation. It's not, it's not when it's convenient, it is now. He's saying, listen, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Like, you've got to understand what's going on in your life. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 27. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Not the most popular preaching in 2000, like 2020, right? Not self-help. There's nothing you can do to help yourself. The only thing you can come to grips with is the fact that you receive Jesus in a moment in time where he offers the kingdom to you and you accept him for who he is or you remain an enemy of his until that happens. Those are the only two kind of people that exist. People who know the Lord and people who don't. You say, well, that's, that's such a narrow-minded view. That's such a narrow-minded view, Jimmy. How can you say that? 
I didn't. Jesus did. He's the most narrow-minded person you've ever encountered in your life. He says, it's me, my way, or the highway. And that's what the Lord calls us to. And so when it comes to a kairos, you don't want to be indifferent as if there is more time. You want to seize it as if it's the only opportunity, because it may be. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, I'm sitting here and like preaching the word. And you know the story, and I'm not going to try to like make this an overly emotional experience, but, it, but I think it serves as a reminder for us. Now go home and turn on the, the TV, and, and we, we learn that even in the moment of, while I was preaching, Kobe Bryant, the picture of health, man, the picture of success, had everything that anybody could ever want, and, and, and is not really doing anything wrong, but the time had come for his life to be over, and right into the side of the mountain, the time had come. Now, I'm not trying to get into, did Kobe know the Lord or not? That's not my business. What I'm trying to say is, we don't know. Like, that was shocking to all of us. It was just shocking. It was like, well, it's so messed up, man. The world is messed up. The world is messed up. And people die every day. And they die in horrible accidents, and they die from illnesses, and they die from diseases, and the Word teaches us that. And the Word says to us, be urgent. Be urgent about the opportunities that you have to encounter things that are eternal because everything else just perishes in the fire of the judgment of Christ's eyes. And so we're, we, we don't want to be caught up in the things of the world, the wood, hay, and the stubble. We want to be caught up in those moments that are all about the kairos. What is the kairos? It is the kingdom breaking out in my life. It is me coming to know Jesus. It is me coming to obey Jesus. It is me seeing areas in my life where I'm not walking in obedience of Jesus and responding it to, to Jesus in it and, and repenting and saying, I'm, I, I'm sorry, Lord, help me to overcome this. And we just keep moving toward the Lord. And guess what happens? Is as we live our lives, people who don't know that truth are put on trial by the testimony, just like our brother Paul put Felix and Drusilla on trial. You don't even have to try, it just happens. And so I want to ask you to bow in a spirit of prayer, man, and just like, there's no doubt that today is a day of, it's a message about salvation. It's a message about the resurrection of Christ and what that means for me as a, as a human being if I receive him. And so if you don't, like if you've never received Christ and he's after you today, is today the day of salvation in your life? It doesn't have to be hard. It's just, it's you, it's you giving your life to him. Like it's, it's, is it free? No. No, it'll cost you your life. That's what it'll cost you today. It's giving it to him and taking it out of your hands. That's what he's asking for. It's a gift that you can't earn. And what he asks for is you to give him your life 
Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at www.overlandpark.cc.